the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend producing, David King engineering in Portland, Pedro Bartes producing and engineering in Seattle. Today I'm looking forward to a conversation with Hans von Spakovsky. He's a manager at the Election Law Reform Initiative and senior legal fellow in the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. We'll talk about the Federal Appeals Court in D.C. ruling that uh, President Trump, former President Trump is not immune from prosecution in the 2020 election case. Uh, We'll find out what that means and what's likely to happen next. We'll also hear from Brett McDougall, author of Prayer Power, 40 Days of Learning to Pray Like George Mueller, book published by Whitaker that's coming up in the five o'clock hour. Well, this just broke moments ago. The Republican-led House of Representatives today failed to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas over his handling of the crisis at the southern border, marking a major blow for House Republicans who pushed for Mayorkas' removal. But that's not the end of the story. The House voted mostly along party lines, but Republicans suffered a number of defections, which torpedoed the vote. Democrats remained united. The vote was 214 to 216. It had been tied at 215 all, but... But there's a story behind that. I'll explain in a moment. The vote was on two articles of impeachment that accused Mayorkas of having refused to comply with federal immigration laws and the other of having violated public trust. A cabinet secretary hasn't been impeached since 1876 when Secretary of War William Belknap uh, was impeached. Well, Republicans accused Mayorkas of disregarding federal law with open border policies that have made the ongoing crisis at the southern border much worse. They pointed to the rolling back of Trump era policies like border wall construction, remain in Mexico, as well as reducing interior enforcement and expanding catch and release. They say it's fueled record numbers at the southern border where numbers breached the 300,000 mark in December. Under Secretary Mayorkas, watch Customs and Border Protection has reported more than 8.5 million encounters at our borders, including more than 7 million apprehensions at the southwest border according to the Homeland Security Committee Chairman Mark Green on the House floor. Even more terrifying is the approximately 1.8 million known gotaways that Border Patrol agents detect but are unable to apprehend. Millions of those inadmissible aliens who are encountered are eventually released into our communities. Uh, This has never happened before in our history, and it doesn't happen by accident, end quote. Green said that Republicans had been left with no other option than to proceed. Well, the vote was, as I mentioned, tied at 215 Republican, 215 Democrats. Uh, Steve Scalise has been out for a period of time. And one of the uh, Democrats that had been among rather one of the Republicans that had been among the 215 reversed his vote uh, so that the um, measure would fail, giving another opportunity at some point in the distant future, maybe not too distant future for another vote. It will be brought up at a later time. Uh, so this uh, certainly was a failure today, but it's not the end of the story from what I understand. 
And other news, um, it's presidential primary day in Nevada, which for a couple of decades has been a key early voting state in the race for the White House. Well, three days after a massive victory in South Carolina's Democratic primary, President Biden is expected to score a second straight landslide in Nevada. But things are far from simple in the Republican primary, where only one of the two major contenders left in the battle for the 2024 GOP presidential nomination will actually appear on the ballot. Nikki Haley, the former two-term South Carolina governor who later served as U.N. ambassador in former President Donald Trump's administration, is the sole remaining candidate listed in the state-run Republican primary contest. But Trump, who's the commanding frontrunner for the GOP nomination as he makes his third straight White House run, isn't on the ballot. Instead, Trump will be listed two days later in a presidential caucus being run by the Nevada GOP. The genesis of the competing contests, it dates back to 2021 when Democrats, who at the time controlled both Nevada's governor's office and the legislature, they passed a law changing the presidential nominating contest from long-held caucus to a state-run primary. The Nevada GOP objected, but last year their legal bid to stop the primary from going forward was also rejected. In a twist, the judge in the case allowed the state Republicans to hold their own caucuses. No delegates will be at stake in the Republican primary, while all 26 will be up for grabs in the GOP caucus. The state GOP ruled that candidates who put their names on the state-run primary ballot could not take part in the caucus. Well, that may explain why uh, Trump's name is not there. Haley and some of the other now departed Republican presidential candidates viewed the Nevada GOP as too loyal to Trump. And they decided to skip the caucus they believed was tipping uh, tipped in favor of the former president. And while Trump's assured of winning all 26 delegates at stake, sources say he and his campaign advisors have some concerns. An unpleasant potential scenario for Trump, who won both the Iowa caucuses and the New Hampshire primary by double digits, could be Haley grabbing more votes in the primary than Trump lands in the caucus. And while the GOP presidential candidates had to choose either the caucus or the primary ballot, registered Republicans in Nevada can vote in both contests. And in the GOP primary, there's no vehicle for voters to write in Trump's name. The choices on the ballot are Haley and a none of these candidates option. Well, Trump's campaign has been working to get the uh, the message out to supporters in Nevada that they um, if they want to vote for the former president, they need to show up at the caucuses. A source of uh, in the former president's political orbit said uh, Team Trump is fortunate that Haley doesn't have her act together in Nevada. Trump is expected back in Las Vegas on Thursday for a caucus celebration. He's optimistic. This week's contests are just an appetizer for Nevada, which is a key general election battleground state. It will see plenty of campaign traffic this summer and in the autumn. So it's just getting started. Senator Kirsten Sinema from Arizona She responded on Monday to House Republican criticism of the border legislation she co-authored. She's the Senate Homeland Security subcommittee on the uh, committee on border management. She's the chairwoman. She she crafted the bill with Senators James Langford from Oklahoma, Republican, and Chris Murphy from Connecticut, the Democrat. And the section of the bill most critiqued by Republicans, uh, the triggering of the emergency authority to prohibit migrant entry 
if um, average encounters surpass 4,000 or 5,000 per day has been the subject of mischaracterizations, she says. I think there's some real misunderstanding about this section of the law. The Border Emergency Authority is actually a really critical element, she said, speaking in an, an interview. Cinema said the bill is right to extend to expand detention capabilities, given the estimated seven to 10 year notice to appear time frame from migrants ultimately released into the nation's interior. Uh, that's obviously a horrible, horrible outcome, she says. But that is what happens with the majority of illegal entrants right now. So we expand detention beds so that those individuals will go into detention, be processed and deported right away. Not everyone can go into detention, though. Little kids who are here alone, families We aren't allowed to keep them in detention. She said the rapid removal authority described under this section targeted by the House Republicans is intended as a backstop if the processing of uh, immigrants or asylum seekers becomes too much to handle under the increased detention capacity. But GOP, they're not buying it. We'll tell you more about uh, GOP senators and their call for McConnell to step down as a result of this legislation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. Just a reminder, coming up later this hour, Hans von Spakovsky will talk about the federal appeals court, the rule that uh, former President Trump is not immune from prosecution in 20, the 2020 election case. We'll Find out the details and what's likely to happen next. Meanwhile, a group of Senate Republicans is growing weary of Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell's leadership and call for him to step down as they aired their grievances over what they called a dead bipartisan border bill slated for the first floor procedural vote tomorrow. Senator J.D. Vance, the Republican of Ohio and Ted Cruz from Texas, told reporters uh, tonight in a press conference that McConnell should have walked away from the border agreement, which they argue expands President Biden's power and does not fully close the border. We're not committing ourselves to voting for this thing just because we entered the negotiation. And you hear this from some of our leadership and hopefully they will stop. The idea that we committed to support, uh, we're committed to supporting whatever came out of this negotiation is pure unadulterated well never mind vance one of the uh, congress's loudest critics against ukraine assistance said he added we supported a negotiation to bring common sense border security to this country we did not agree to a border fig leaf to send another 61 billion dollars to ukraine in quote well cruz a staunch critic of mcconnell since 2013 said the long-standing leader offered no response when he asked him Is there anything we are willing to fight on regarding the closed door border negotiations that began in December, which Republicans are now determined to tarnish? Well, Senators uh, James Lankford uh, from Oklahoma, the lead Republican negotiator, has been facing pushback from the caucus over the deal, was struck with uh, Senators Chris Murphy. Kirsten Cinema and uh, the Biden administration officials. More than 20 Republicans have already vowed to strike down the bill on Wednesday, arguing they need adequate time for amendments and further analysis. They only got it a day or so ago. Meanwhile, Republicans are also hanging out uh, onto a post Murphy posted on X on Sunday after the text was released, which read the border never closes, but claims must be processed at the ports. Cruz contended the Biden administration already has the ability to shut down the border and turn migrants away under the current immigration laws. His first week in a president at in as president, he halted construction on the border wall. He reinstated the disastrous policy of catch and release, and he pulled out uh, of the unbelievably successful remain in Mexico agreement that caused this explosion, Cruz said. It also means Joe Biden could solve it tomorrow by reversing those three decisions. The only way Cruz said the border bill would make it 
get across the finish line in the national uh, supplemental package is if the Senate passed H.R. 2, the GOP-led House's immigration bill passed last year, which includes Trump-era-style expulsions and security measures. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, he already deemed that bill a non-starter in the Senate. Meanwhile, the House has uh, repeatedly asked or rather called on the Senate border bill um, and calling it dead on arrival, making it a near impossible scenario that a border security bill gets passed anytime soon. An energy watchdog group, Power the Future, filed a federal freedom of information lawsuit against the Biden administration today, alleging it has failed to divulge special envoy for climate, John Kerry's taxpayer funded staff. PTF, again, Power the Future, filed the complaint in the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia, listing the State Department as the defendant. According to the lawsuit, the agency, which houses the multi-million dollar SPEC office, has repeatedly refused to disclose the names and job titles of Kerry's staff, while similarly resisting congressional oversight related to the matter. For nearly three years, John Kerry has been jet-setting on the International Climate Conference circuit while sending taxpayers the bill. The PTF executive director told Fox News Digital, Today we began the process of teaching John Kerry and Joe Biden that they work for the taxpayers. No one should have to waste resources on litigation, but that is our only option since John Kerry thinks he can keep his office off the books. The American people are on the receiving end of countless green mandates and rules, gas stove bans, skyrocketing utility bills with no opportunity for consent or input. And many of these decisions are hatched in John Kerry's office. He continued. That's why it is our hope that this litigation will finally bring to light the information we deserve to know. The staff names, the office goals and budget, the outside partnerships that peddle influence on Joan Biden's green agenda. Well, in January, PTF filed a Freedom of Information Act request with the State Department asking for an unredacted list of Kerry's staff. The request was made after the Boston Herald reported weeks earlier that it had obtained Freedom of Information Act documents showing a list of SPEC office staff positions and salaries, but redacting the names of the individuals in those positions. According to the Boston Herald, Carol's, uh, Kerry's staff in positions such as policy analysts or senior advisors are collectively paid $4.3 million a year. Some unnamed officials are paid as much as one hundred and eighty six thousand six hundred and eighty dollars per year, making them some of the highest paid individuals in the federal government. But no one knows their names, their positions or what they're charged with doing. Well, a Michigan jury on Tuesday found Jennifer Crumbly. She's the mother of Oxford High School shooter Ethan Crumbly, guilty of four counts of involuntary manslaughter in her historic criminal trial. Jennifer and her husband, James, uh, were each charged with four counts of involuntary manslaughter in connection with the shooting that left four students dead and seven others injured in November of 21. Jennifer will uh, be sentenced on the 9th of April. Well, James Crumbly is being tried separately. The pair are the first parents in U.S. history to stand trial for a mass school shooting. As a parent, you spend your whole life, she said, trying to protect your child from other dangers. She was uh, on the witness stand on Thursday while answering questions from the defense. You never uh, you never would think you have to protect your child from harming someone else. That's what blew my mind. That was the hardest thing I had to stomach is that my child harmed and killed other people, end quote. Well, her defense team, they argue that she did not know her son was planning a school shooting and therefore shouldn't be held accountable for Ethan's crimes. 
Meanwhile, the prosecution argued that Ethan's many cries for help went ignored and that the then 15-year-old carried out the shooting using the gun his parents allegedly purchased for him as a gift. Well, so they're standing trial. Her attorney, Shannon Smith, said the prosecution cherry-picked evidence to accuse Jennifer of involuntary manslaughter, saying it's obvious real life is messy and complicated, and during this trial, I will openly admit that I am a lawyer who messes up, I am a human being, and so is Mrs. Crumley, and that's what this case is about. She's not a perfect person or a perfect parent, Smith said in her closing statements. Smith added that the shooting was clearly not foreseeable to Mrs. Crumley. Prosecutors suggested Jennifer could have stopped the shootings before it happened when she arrived at Oxford High School on the morning of November 30th, 2021, to meet with school counselors after Ethan was caught scrawling disturbing notes in class. His notes included an image of a gun and the phrase, help me, blood everywhere, and my class is useless, along with drawings of a gun. Uh, You could have been with me, with him, Oakland County Assistant Prosecutor Mark Keast said on Friday. I could have, yes, she said, uh, testifying. Ethan Crumley pled uh, guilty to murder and terrorism last year. He's serving a life sentence in prison without the possibility of parole. Instead of taking her son home, prosecutors said Jennifer and her husband left him at school and went about their day. Ethan later took a gun from his backpack and shot a total of 11 people, four of whom died. Now, the parents suggest that the school had given them the option Either take him home or allow him to stay. They blame the school for um, giving that as an option. Prosecutors also said Ethan Crumley made a 19 minute video the day before the shooting describing what he was going to do in the school the next day. After the shooting, the Crumleys allegedly fled Oxford and went to Detroit following some initial questions from police. U.S. Marshals eventually apprehended the couple days later on the 4th of December that same year. The minute this shooting became public and ended up in the paper, in the media, Jennifer Crumbly started telling a story and then she ran. And she didn't run just because she was selfish. She ran and she started deleting text messages. She started telling a different story because she knew she did something wrong. The Oakland County prosecutor, Karen McDonald, said in her closing statements on Friday, clearly the uh, jury believed uh, what the prosecutor suggested. And uh, Mrs. Crumley has been found guilty. Her husband stands trial in the next few weeks separately. Los Angeles received more than seven inches of rain between Sunday and Monday, the third highest two day rainfall total on record. The city averages 14.25 inches of rain annually and has received half of that total in just 48 hours. Homes have been severely damaged after landslides sent boulders and debris tumbling down hills in the Los Angeles area due to torrential rain from a deadly atmospheric river storm that slammed Southern California. Um, Fox weather correspondent Max Gordon was in the Beverly Glen neighborhood of Los Angeles where One mudslide knocked a home off of its foundation. At least four people were dead and hundreds of landslides and mudslides have been reported in the wake of this powerful atmospheric river storm that lashed California with torrential rain and hurricane force winds uh, gusts uh, over the past few days. Southern California, including Los Angeles, felt the brunt of the storm, which brought catastrophic flooding due to the relentless rain that drenched the city of Angels. Residents were urged to stay off the roads and not travel due to the storm's effects, which led to the landslides and flooding that covered uh, streets and highways across the region. Several swift water rescues were made uh, after vehicles attempted to drive across flooded roads and became stuck. And it continues to uh, 
be a challenge for Californians. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in just a few moments. A reminder, a conversation on the president being told uh, that he does not have uh, immunity. He does not have executive immunity from prosecution in the 2020 election case, according to the D.C. Uh, federal um, circuit court. We'll talk with Hans von Spakovsky about that, what it means and what's next. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. I'm Georgine Rice. Coming up in our next segment, a conversation on the rejection by the circuit court of uh, in D.C. of the president's request to have his uh, prosecution null and void. There are several issues. We'll talk with Hans von Spakovsky about uh, his immunity request that has been denied. What happens next? Or is it over? That's uh, what we'll talk about with uh, Hans von Spakovsky. And then coming up in the second hour, a conversation with Brett McDougall, Prayer Power, 40 Days of Learning to Pray Like George Mueller. That's coming up in the 5 o'clock hour. Well, several of the illegal immigrants suspected of beating New York City police officers were arrested in Phoenix, Arizona on Monday night. Immigration and Customs Enforcement sources say that the uh, migrants allegedly involved in the mob beating of the New York uh, Police Department officers were arrested Monday evening by ICE and Homeland Security uh, at a Greyhound bus station in Phoenix. The identities of the suspects arrested have not been released, although I think by now they have. There are also no further details on which migrants uh, seen beating the officers were arrested on Monday. Four migrants involved in the mob beating in New York were believed to be headed to California after the incident. New York uh, Governor Kathy Hochul said at a news conference Friday that she wanted to speak with Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg about why most of the suspects were released without bail. She said prosecutors should have sought to keep them behind bars. Certainly an assault on a police officer is bail eligible, Hochul told reporters. She added there are over 100 crimes that also can lead to deportation. And so that is also something I want to have a conversation with the district attorney about his options here. This is a developing story, although she seems to be unwilling to take leadership in it. White House uh, has consulted TikTok climate activist, a climate activist, on the latest fossil fuel crackdown, a prominent Gen Z climate activist who has amassed nearly 700,000 followers on TikTok, said he met with White House officials ahead of the president's decision to pause major liquefied natural gas export projects, or LNG. I started advocating to stop new LNG export terminals last year after learning of the level of pollution this type of fuel adds to the atmosphere. Uh, Alex Haras uh, said uh, he has a... uh, uh, has posted TikTok videos on climate change regularly, racking up thousands and sometimes millions of views. Said new research, it indicates that LNG can have a dirtier carbon footprint than coal when burned and that the U.S. already exports enough to allies, adding that it doesn't make sense to poison more people with the pollution uh, they put um, uh, they output so a few corporations could profit. That's a quote from his site. Well, in November, he began routinely posting videos about the dangers of um, Uh, The federal government permitting more LNG export terminals, which are projects designed to leverage American fossil fuel reserves to help U.S. allies in Europe and Asia wean off Russian energy. While proponents of the project have argued they will benefit the U.S. economy, allies, energy security and curb emissions. But in videos oftentimes filmed from Louisiana, where LNG export terminals are being built, uh, this um, TikToker said the projects would lead to greater emissions and therefore worsen global warming. 
Well, then after um, he started posting the videos, Harris said that he met with White House climate advisors alongside environmental activists from the Gulf Coast, also opposed to the projects. And on January 26th, the White House and the Department of Energy announced it had paused permitting for all pending LNG export terminals over uh, climate impacts appearing to cede to the activists' demands. As if we didn't have uh, specialists who could uh, provide reliable information on the subject. Harris declined to offer additional details on the meeting, saying that people are concerned about the, his conversations with the White House, but not the many meetings with fossil fuel lobby that has um, that the White House has had or millions of dollars the fossil fuel lobby has spent to skew policy in its favor. Well, shortly after the White House announcement, Harris posted a video in which he cheered the decision and called for activists to celebrate. But not everybody's celebrating. And there's an, there's an investigation into the influence of these organizations, whether or not they have any uh, expertise or um, if this is a political ploy to gain the support of younger people. House Speaker Mike Johnson, the Republican out of Louisiana, is preparing to bring a standalone Israel aid bill for a House vote today. Three sources have indicated, but early opposition from the right flank could already force the Republican leader to seek help from Democrats to pass it. Johnson announced over the weekend that he intends to pass legislation to send $17.6 billion to Israel as it fights a war against Hamas. But GOP hardliners have already come out against it, which could force the House leaders to fast-track the bill to the floor via suspension of the rules. It would bypass a procedural hurdle known as a rule vote to exchange in exchange rather for raising the threshold for passage to two thirds of the chamber rather than a simple majority. A Congress can pay for Israel aid by cutting funding to the United Nations, repealing the IRS expansion, rescinding the Department of Commerce slush fund or ending climate change tax credits. The House Freedom Caucus leader said on Sunday, conservatives should not be forced to choose between borrowing money to support our special friend Israel or honoring our commitment to end unpaid supplemental spending that exacerbate our nation's unsustainable fiscal crisis and further risks our ability to respond to future crises. End quote. Well, rule uh, votes would traditionally fall across party lines. Even lawmakers who oppose the legislation itself would vote along with their leadership to pass the rule. But it's been weaponized several times during the 118th Congress by GOP factions that have deliberately sunk bills in protection, uh, in protest rather, of how Republican leaders are handling matters, even those unrelated to the legislation they're voting on. Rule votes would traditionally fall across party lines, but that's not the case now. Putting up the Israel aid bill under suspicion, which two GOP aides uh, say they anticipate is likely, would make Democrat support critical to its passage. Johnson has used suspension to pass several critical pieces of legislation already this year, most recently including a bipartisan bicameral tax bill. Making the situation trickier this time, however, is the Senate's intent to vote on a $118 billion security agreement that includes a border security overhaul and, among other things, funding for Israel. That bill, which is backed by the White House and Senate leaders on both sides, is expected to get a vote by Wednesday. The White House threatened to veto Johnson's Israel bill on Monday evening, a move the speaker called an act of betrayal, but one that could give more Democrats cover to vote against it. Well, we'll continue to follow that developing story. 
And January saw 353,000 jobs added, coming in significantly higher than the forecasted 180,000 jobs. The unemployment rate remained unchanged at 3.7 percent, and the average hourly wage rose 0.6 percent, which was double what economists were anticipating. Yet that hourly wage growth coincides with a drop in the average number of hours worked, which came in at 34.1 hours. Well, the past two months of strong job growth numbers will likely mean that the Federal Reserve will not engage in any interest rate cuts soon. Fed Chair Jerome Powell observed if the economy evolves uh, broadly as expected, it will likely be appropriate to begin dialing back policy restraint at some point this year. But the economy has surprised forecasters in many ways since the pandemic and ongoing progress toward our 2% inflation objective is not assured, end quote. Well, President Biden is blaming grocery stores for Bidenflation. Since Joe Biden took office, total inflation has risen by over 17 percent. But the president, like so many other politicians before him, is seeking to shift the blame away from his massive spending policies that have been the primary culprit for the uh, the fact that Americans are shelling out more of their hard-earned dollars for the goods like milk and eggs. Inflation is coming down. It's now lower in America than any other major economy in the world, the president claimed in a recent speech in South Carolina. Correction. The rate of inflationary growth has slowed. Inflation has not come down. But for all we've uh, done to bring prices down, there are still too many corporations in America ripping people off, the president said. Price gouging, junk fees, greedflation, shrinkflation. He then claimed that Americans were tired of being played for suckers by grocery stores. And that's why we're going to keep these guys, um, uh, keep on them and get their prices down, end quote. Well, people are tired of being played for suckers, not by grocery stores, but perhaps by politicians who offer fixes that actually make the problems worse. Vilifying businesses for offering people the goods they need based on the reality of the value of the dollar is not the problem. Indeed, the best way to keep prices down is via competition and for the federal government to stop spending money like a drunken sailor. Not that I know how much money drunken sailors actually spend. Well, the $118 billion national security legislation also includes billions of dollars in funding for Ukraine, Israel and Indo-Pacific and humanitarian aid. But it has a politically perilous path ahead. Lawmakers on both right and the left have slammed the measure and House Speaker Mike Johnson called it dead on arrival in the chamber. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer announced that he would hold the first procedural vote on the legislation on Wednesday. And we will follow that story. Up next, a conversation with Hans von Spakovsky with the Heritage Foundation on the federal appeals court ruling that former President Trump is not immune from prosecution in the 2020 election case he faces. That and more when we return. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, former President Trump is not immune from prosecution in the 2020 federal election case. The U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in D.C., they considered uh, Trump's claim of presidential immunity from prosecution for his actions in office, including his alleged role in trying to overturn his 2020 election loss, ultimately saying it was unpersuaded by his argument and ruled a case against him can proceed. Uh, The court wrote in its ruling, we have balanced former President Trump's asserted interests in executive immunity against the vital public interests that favor allowing this prosecution to proceed. And it determined 
we conclude that the interest in criminal accountability held by both the public and the executive branch outweighs the potential risks of chilling presidential action and permitting vexatious litigation. Vexatious litigation. Well, here to help us sort through all of this is Hans von Spakovsky. He's a manager at the Election Law Reform Initiative and senior legal fellow in the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Sure. Uh, glad to talk to you again. Well, this is um, this is clearly a loss for the former president. Uh, maybe we can just begin uh, with the backstory. Uh, there were a couple of issues raised, one that the court chose not to deal with at all, and that had to do with the U.S. Attorney General, I should say, with uh, Jack Smith's appointment as special counsel. Um, right. But what were the main issues that the court rejected today, allowing it to move forward? Well, it... Uh it basically, I mean, the most important thing it rejected was the, the president's claim that uh, he had presidential immunity for any act that he took in relation to uh, contesting the outcome of the election. You know, what I found problematic about the opinion is, look, on this issue, criminal liability, this, the U.S. Supreme Court has never ruled. But the court acknowledged when it comes to civil liability, that a former president is absolutely immune uh, from civil liability for acts that he, he took when he was when, when he was president. And and the, the point was to prevent vexatious, <laughs> vexatious litigation. <laughs> I, I don't understand how they could possibly say that. Well, if the Supreme Court has said that, yeah, you got immunity from civil litigation, why would they think you wouldn't get immunity from criminal litigation? What they said was that, well, in our whole history, there's never been criminal prosecutions of former presidents and grand juries. Federal grand juries are prohibited from initiating investigations out of malice or an intent to harass. Well, hmm. past history does not tell you what uh, what's happening right now. Yeah. And in, and in fact, I think you can easily um, find that the grand jury that indicted Trump in Washington, D.C., uh, was intended to harass him. Um, I think certainly the uh, in, in indictment down in Georgia by the local prosecutor down there was intent to harass him. And I can very much see, I think of this situation, a president orders drone strikes on uh, terrorists in the Middle East. Um, civilians are also killed as a as a, a result of that. A new president comes in of the opposing party who doesn't believe in doing that. Uh, under this ruling, nothing would prevent the Justice Department from in, uh, starting a criminal prosecution of the former president for murder for ordering those drone strikes. What impact is this likely to have if the court's ruling were to stand? And I expect the Supreme Court will at some point weigh in. But if this ruling were to stand, what impact would this likely have on future presidents and their ability to govern without fear of reprisal at some point once they are out of office? Well, this court minimized that. And I think they were absolutely wrong in doing that. Uh, When you look at at how politicized our justice system has become, particularly the Mm -hmm. U.S. Justice Department. Um, I think this will 
change behavior of future presidents. I think they will be deterred from potentially taking actions that they know once they leave the presidency could result in in criminal prosecutions of them. And anyone who does, we have a two-tiered system. I mean, just look at the other case against Trump over his uh, having classified documents at his home down in Florida. You know, the National Archives had testified before Congress, I think last year, that, well, they've had that problem with every former president, uh, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, uh, taking classified documents with them. And was there ever a criminal prosecution of any of them like that? No. That tells you how much things have changed for the worse. Yeah, this could very well become a cudgel for future presidents once they've left right. office for political gain. Now, the other argument uh, that they made had to do with his having been impeached. Uh, he was acquitted in the Senate, but he right. was impeached. And he said, well, we have double jeopardy here. Therefore, you cannot charge me for something that I've already been tried for, albeit in the uh, in the House of Representatives. Yeah, again, that's an issue that has never been decided, whether double jeopardy applies um, when when you've got both an impeachment and a criminal prosecution. I, again, I think the court made a mistake. I, I think given the fact that the Constitution gives authority over the um, misbehavior of president to Congress. The fact that he was acquitted of insurrection in the U.S. Senate after being impeached, I think should be given great weight. And, and frankly, I think it should be considered double jeopardy. But that's also something the Supreme Court is going to have to rule on. And I would actually hope that they would reverse what the court has done in this case. Because again, I think it's federal courts interfering with the legislative branch and its duties and responsibilities. Yeah, yeah. Now, timing is everything in this case, because, of course, uh, President uh, Trump is seeking reelection and there's a lot going on this year. Um, he has right. a couple of options moving forward. He could appeal to the full D.C. Circuit Court. He could appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. Can you explain what his options are and what you think is most likely to, to be the course taken by the former president and his team? Yeah, this this case was only uh, uh, courts of appeals get so many cases that what they do when a first a case first gets to them is rather than all of the judges hearing each case, they assign three judges to hear a case. That's what this decision was. Uh, if you get a bad decision when you want to appeal, um, you have the option and Trump has the option of asking the entire court of appeals. To review what this three-judge panel did, your second option is to just skip trying to get the entire Court of Appeals to hear it and go directly uh, to the U.S. Supreme Court. I think right now it's a tough choice, I think, for him to decide which to do. Um, I probably would go directly to the Supreme Court, and it's for this reason. Uh, When Harry Reid was the head of the Senate, they packed the Court of Appeals in, in the District of Columbia. It's one of the least uh, worked courts of appeal in the country. They have the least amount of cases per judge, yet they added three judges, <laughs> all Democrats, in, because they didn't like that the, the fact, the makeup of the court. They thought there were too many conservatives, so they packed the court to give liberals a majority on the court and ever since then, this court, frankly, has been issuing, I think, some very bad decisions. So he may want to go. Trump may want to go directly to the Supreme Court. Will the Supreme Court take up the case? That's the question. 
Oh, yeah, they they will. I don't think they have any choice Mm -hmm. but to take it up. And at that point, I think they also have to take up the issue that's been raised by former Attorney General Ed Meese um, that Jack Smith, who's the special prosecutor who's been criminally going after Trump, actually was illegally appointed because Attorney General Merrick, Merrick Garland had no authority to appoint him. Well, it's going to be an interesting next several uh, months, will it not, <laughs> in this election year? <laughs> it, it, well, it will. And even more interesting is, as you know, this week, the Supreme Court is about to hear oral arguments in the attempts to uh, disqualify Trump yes. from the ballot in several states. Never a dull moment. <laughs> Hans von Spakovsky, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. I, I hope we can talk again soon. Sure thing. Anytime. Thank you. Again, Hans von Spakovsky is with the Heritage Foundation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, in the new book, Prayer Power, 40 Days of Learning to Pray Like George Mueller, author and pastor Brent Patrick McDougall, he invites the reader to take a 40-day journey to do something very specific, pray. We need to learn a particular and persistent kind of prayer, he writes. He wrote Prayer Power after uh, putting into practice the prayer method of 19th century pastor George Mueller, one of the great heroes of the Christian faith. Over a lifetime of ministry, he launched multiple orphanages that cared for more than 10,000 children, but not once did he ever ask for donations. Instead, he prayed as each need arose. Well, every chapter in the book features a teaching from Scripture and a story from the life of Mueller. A, uh, as uh, Dr. Brent uh, leads the reader through each day's reflection, he offers instructions on how to pray on a deeper level. Uh, prayer power, everyday people in the, in the book, uh, people of faith can learn how to pray with the faith of George Mueller, expecting answers because our God is good. He's waiting to meet uh, and our reward and to reward those rather who seek him. Well, Dr. Brent Patrick McDougall is the senior pastor of the First Baptist Church of Knoxville, Tennessee. Each Sunday, he uh, speaks to about 3000 people through in-person television and online worship. He received his B.A. in religion and political science from Emory University and a Master of Divinity from Beeson Divinity School in Samford University. He also holds a Ph.D. in political science from the University of Alabama, a cross-discipline study of politics and religion. Well, he is the author of The River of the Soul and Faith, Hope, and Politics. He's written numerous guest blogs, posts, and articles, including America's Spiritual Pandemic for Christianity Today. A native of Alabama, he has a heart for bringing people together, cultivating atmospheres of prayer, and encouraging devotion among church members as well as throughout the community at large. We are just so delighted to have you with us. Uh, Dr. McDougall, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me today. You begin in the introduction of your book, Prayer Power. You write, your greatest resource is not money, intellect, or popularity, or pedigree. Your greatest asset is not represented on your resume or in the roll call of your accomplishments. While all these are good, they're secondary to the central sacred resource available to you. You, of course, are referring to prayer. Why do we so grossly underestimate the resource we have at our hands, the invitation that we have from God himself to come before his throne of grace, um, to meet with him. It's so true that oftentimes we don't experience power in prayer. I've met people over the course of many years of ministry who say they just feel like they can't experience any breakthrough. They wonder if prayer is just for the super saints, 
they don't understand the teachings of uh, the Bible about prayer. And because uh, just in that futility, they don't exercise their faith through prayer, they don't experience power. But I really wanted people to know that these promises that are present all throughout Scripture, these miraculous promises about what God can do through the power of prayer, are true not just for a few people, but for all believers who can learn how to pray. You know, the disciples, they asked Jesus, teach us to pray. And he did. Mm -hmm. We need to learn how to pray. And uh, as we learn how to pray, we too can experience that power through prayer. Well, this may seem like a simplistic question, but I think it's one that many believers still ponder. What is the purpose of our prayer? Scripture says he knows what we need before we ask. And many of us conclude, well, if he already knows, what would be the point? What is the purpose uh, in prayer and God's invitation? The primary purpose is not asking for what we need, although that is certainly something that is available to us. Uh, The purpose of prayer, I believe, is found in scriptures such as uh, Psalm 63, where David talks about this earnest, beautiful, passionate prayer just to be in the presence of God. Mm. He says, I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there's no water. He cries out to the living God and he says, God, I just want to be with you. I want to be where you are and I want you to be in me. And it's from that place of passion, I believe, that then we are able to ask for the things that we need. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he said, pray like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's, he's teaching us about his presence and about his kingdom. And that's the place to start. It's not so much just a litany of what we would ask for, but instead to learn to pray in such a way that we really are experiencing communion, a daily communion with our Heavenly Father. If we can't learn to pray like that, it's unlikely that we're really going to learn a deep dependence Mm -hmm. and a trust such that we will be able to ask rightly for the things that we need. I love the the use of the word communion. It's not a one-way street where I simply express what's on my heart, walk away and, and engage in other activities. But we are in relationship. We're in fellowship with God and uh, he speaks to us and we bear our hearts to him as well. Uh, talk a little bit about George Mueller. You uh, mentioned in the subtitle, 40 Days of Learning to Pray Like George Mueller. Now, this is a, a 19th century pastor that many of our listeners may be unfamiliar with. Yes. Well, I learned about George Mueller by hearing these stories about answers to prayer. And Mueller was a pastor in the 19th century who mostly worked in Bristol, England. But his work was not only in the walls of the church as a pastor. He was out in the community and especially helping to care for orphans who were on the street. In fact, over the course of his ministry, Mueller opened four orphanages that allowed him to care for 10,000 children that were uh, destitute so he could provide for them food, shelter, uh, education, and also spiritual nourishment. So Mueller was known as having a heart for children, you know, and that's what the Bible says, you know, God is a father to the fatherless. He, He loves the little ones. He looks after the ones who have no father, and then he calls people to be fathers to those uh, who don't have a father. So that's what Mueller did. He was known for his care for orphans, but he was mostly known to be a person of great prayer. In fact, 
Mueller said that over the course of his lifetime, he experienced 50,000 answers to prayer. He never asked for a dime for the orphanages. Uh, He never um, asked for a donation from anyone regarding the buildings. If he had um, if he had been in today's work, he would have raised about one hundred and seventy million dollars over the course of his ministry. And it all happened through prayer. He just asked the Lord for what he needed. Well, as I was learning about his life, I remember telling a story once about a time in which he was caring for the orphans and they had no bread and no milk for breakfast. They were needing to get to their classes for school and unfortunately they were going to have to go hungry. And so he called the children together. He called all the adults and he said, let's all bow. And they prayed a prayer of thanks for what God was about to provide. Even though there was nothing on the table, they said, thank you, Lord, for what you're about to do. And it wasn't long before there was a knock at the door the milk truck had broken down outside the orphanages and the milk was going to spoil. Could they have use of it to give to the orphans? So they had milk for the day. And then the baker sent word that he had overbaked for the day and had extra bread. Could he send it over to the orphanage to feed the children? Mueller saw so many things like that happen. And I believe his ability to give thanks before the prayer was answered was part of his secret. So I heard all these stories about his life, and I thought, you know, I'm tired of telling George Mueller stories. I want to <laughs> live George Mueller stories. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I want to experience power in prayer for myself. And so that was really a, a beginning of a journey where I started to study his life and really the biblical principles that he lived by, and I began to experience breakthrough. I saw such amazing things happen immediately as I put these things into practice. And so I wrote this book because I wanted the people to experience that very same power in prayer. Mm. We're going to take a break in a moment, but I do want to give you an opportunity to dispel what may be a misunderstanding about the nature of prayer. Uh, You're a a pastor, Uh, Pastor Mueller. He was a pastor. Uh, There are certain people for whom prayers uh, are offered and answered while the rest of us uh, aren't in the same position where we're heard and uh, receive a response in the same way that you do. I'm certain that there are some of our listeners who imagine they're in a separate category and that there's no principle uh, in Scripture that would apply to their prayers being answered in such extraordinary ways. Your thoughts on that, uh, Pastor McDougall? Yes. Well, as we uh, consider the teachings of Scripture, I think it's important to remember that not every um, thing that is there is only applicable to pastors. So, for instance, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he was talking to them long before any of them became pastors or leaders in, in the church. And he taught them, ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. He was giving them these promises, not just for a few, but for everybody. And if Jesus is to to be believed, that we can expect that he's going to swing by the door when we go before him. Uh, George Mueller said, every believer, when they draw near to God, should have full confidence that God is listening and willing to answer prayer. And our difficulty seems to be that these promises are just too great. We think, well, that can't be what God means. We stagger at the promises through our unbelief, and therefore, Mueller says, we fail to secure the treasure that was purchased for us by Christ. And what that means is that 
All of us have access to the throne of God, as amazing as that may seem. Mm -hmm. We all have access to the one Father. We can all go directly to God. And all the promises of Scripture are for everyone who comes by faith. So I just want to encourage those who are listening today, these promises are for you. You can experience great breakthrough in prayer. And don't let unbelief get in the way of your relationship with God. Go to Him and see what God can do as you pray. Amen. We're going to take a quick break. Again, we're talking with Dr. Brent Patrick McDougall. He is the author of Prayer Power, 40 Days of Learning to Pray Like George Mueller. We'll be back in just a few moments. Once again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with Dr. Brent Patrick McDougall. He's senior pastor of the First Baptist Church of Knoxville, Tennessee. And we're talking about his book, Prayer Power, 40 Days of Learning to Pray Like George Mueller. We were talking just before the break about this uh, this notion that we may misunderstand that God has extended this invitation to all of us. Another misunderstanding, and then we'll get to the the book. uh, Another misunderstanding might be that I can pray for virtually anything and expect that God will respond because of the promises that he has made. Are there parameters? Um, Are we to pray according to God's will or according to my preference? Such a great question. It's certainly important that we seek to pray in God's will. And not to be asking in such a way that is not befitting what God wants for our lives. We can't expect God to give us something that's not good for us. And so one of the important principles that George Mueller put into practice was to seek to understand God's will and to pray accordingly. And he had a very specific way of going about that. So one of the biggest things I learned from George Mueller's life is that the way that you live by faith, impacts the power that you experience in prayer. So what happens is a lot of people are just going about their business. They're not really living for the will of God. They're not really changing their behavior. They're not really seeking God in all things. And then they go to God and they wonder, why am I not experiencing more answers to prayer? We've got to be living in such a way that is consistent with the promises that are given to us uh, about prayer. Amen. Now, the book is divided into six sections. Uh, Talk about the importance of these six topics and the order that they're in as uh, uh, a reader goes through the 40 days to learn to pray, uh, as did uh, George Mueller. Yes. So the book is broken down into six sections. Uh, There are 40 chapters that are part of all those six sections. And so it's a 40-day kind of brief devotional each day that has a biblical principle a story from George Mueller's life, typically an an anecdote from my own life or something else, and then sort of a takeaway point, a prayer principle is what I call it. So as people move through uh, those 40 days of devotion, they'll they'll experience sort of six movements or six principles that George Mueller taught about how to live a life that experiences power in prayer. The first one is to abide in Christ. That comes from John chapter 15, in which he talks about abide in me and I will abide in you. So every day seeking to become happy in the Lord is our first principle. You know, getting our hearts right, just glad to be living for God today, to abide in him and to day by day, hour by hour, live in the presence of God, listening and looking to God for everything that you need. The second principle is 
complete dependence on God. So this is recognizing that you need God for your physical troubles, your financial troubles, your career challenges, your relationship issues. It's really a posture bringing everything before the Lord in prayer. There's the foundation of abiding, but then there's the way that in all things you, you bring before your Heavenly Father your needs and concerns. Now, the third principle is to forsake sin. This is really important because oftentimes we have sin in our lives that blocks the way in which we experience the presence of God. And we might not think that there's a connection between forsaking sin and prayer, but Jesus said, if there's anything in your life that's causing you to sin, cut it out immediately. Don't abide it. Don't rationalize it. Don't put it off for another day. Get rid of it because it gets in the way of the way that you're experiencing God. The fourth principle is to exercise your faith. Now, this means that you are stepping in faith, even if you don't see steps two, three, and four, you're taking that first step. You're listening to the Holy Spirit. You're willing to, to move by faith and to trust that God is going to lead you with each new step. You're not waiting on God to put it all together or show you every single thing, but instead you're moving by faith. That's the fourth principle. The fifth principle is to learn to pray in the will of God. And so that means seeking the Lord through Scripture and in the power of the Spirit, emptying yourself of your own will, saying, not my will, God, but what you want. Mueller said that's 90% of the problem, is that we bring an agenda into our mm -hmm. prayers rather than leaving the outcomes to the Lord. And then finally, sixth, it's to persevere in prayer. We give up way too soon. We don't pray through problems or the biggest things that we want to see in life. But Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. And actually, a better way to translate those phrases are keep asking, keep knocking, keep seeking. He taught us that we should always pray and never give up. So persevere in prayer and wait for the Lord to work out what you want to see happen. What a what a wonderful 40 days to focus on prayer and to learn how to get um, everything that God intends for us to learn about prayer, to engage in prayer and to see him uh, respond in a way that demonstrates his faithfulness. What's needed to start this method of prayer? Where do we begin? Sure. Well, certainly you need a. Uh a regular pattern of Bible reading and also the practice of prayer. So I'm always surprised by how few people, even people in churches, you know, that are in worship every week, but they don't have a regular way of, of meeting with God. So you need a, a way of reading the Bible and, and really reading the Bible in and of itself. Don't rely on a devotional, you know, go to God's word. That's where the power is. So um, Jesus said to find a place, uh, a, a secret sort of place that's just for you. Uh, he doesn't mean like a place that no one else knows about, but a quiet place that's away from everyone else and shut the door. And God, who is in secret, will meet you and reward you in secret. So you need a plan, you need a place, and then you just need um, a passion. You know, you need to be willing to be taught, willing to linger in the presence of God, Really, you could move through these 40 days of devotion and not necessarily cultivate any greater passion than what you already have. 
but instead to ask the Lord, God, would you give me greater passion for you? Would you help me to long to be in your presence? Would you reveal yourself to me as I meet with you? Because, Lord, I just want to know you and I want to be with you. That's what's, I think, required to really be transformed in prayer. And I appreciate your reminding us that even the desire to please him, the power to please him comes from him. So we can approach uh, an effort to um, understand and practice prayer uh, in a more biblical way by asking him to give us that desire to help us along the way. So if we don't have to start out as passionate as we hope we will be when we've uh, gone through the 40 days. But that's a, a great thing to be reminded of. If I'm not there yet, God will bring me uh, along. Right. Now, for those who oh, who struggle with the time, uh, and that, I, I suppose that's a struggle we have in so many ways, but the time to, prayer, uh, to pray, uh, can we take a few minutes here, a few minutes there? What's the best approach? And what do you say to those who struggle with just finding sufficient time? To those that would say they don't have enough time to pray or to read the Bible, I would say that you have 24 hours in the day, just like every other human being on the planet <laughs> has God ever had. Has given, God has given you enough time to do what God wants you to do, to fulfill God's purpose. God has given you all the time that you need. And if you give your time to God, God will give you sufficient time to accomplish everything else. You know, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom. I believe this means seek first in the morning. Um, when I wake up, I try to wake up in a posture of prayer and then to read the Bible as the first words that hit my mind. Because I know when things get busy, you know, all these other worries and information start to rush in. And so I want that first seeking of him to be setting the pace for the day. I think it's a good pattern not everyone is, is a morning person. Maybe other people might say it's at night, but I do believe that seeking him first and uh, letting that be the standard for how the rest of the day goes is so important. You know, I, I heard one pastor say, if I, if I miss a, a morning of prayer, then uh, I notice it. If I, if I miss a week of prayer, my wife notices <laughs> if, I, if I miss a month of prayer, my church notices it, you know, <laughs> we've got to be seeking him. And so I would say, don't, don't kick yourself. If you, if you haven't prayed as much as you would like to, or that God wants you to just begin, ask the Lord to help you to increase from a few minutes to five minutes or from five minutes to 10 minutes. And what I've experienced is that the more that you taste the presence of the Lord, the more you see how good it is. And you'll just want more of it. God can change your heart little by little. Yes, yes. Once again, the book is titled Prayer Power, 40 Days of Learning to Pray Like George Mueller. And can you tell us, where can our listeners find a copy? The book is published by Whitaker House. Where can we find it? Listeners can go on Amazon and search for Prayer Power and then my name, Brent McDougall. And people are able to, to purchase it there. They can also go to Whitaker House amazing publisher and uh, can purchase it there online as well. There are um, lots of, uh, I think, opportunities for churches to not only to, to see this happen among individuals, but also to see a whole church to kind of move through this as a 40-day journey. It can really be transformative. And so um, I would just encourage people to um, 
to give it a try. And I love to hear from people that are reading this book. It has been such a joy to hear how people are being transformed in prayer, just as I've been transformed. It gives me such great hope for the church in America. Yes. So I, I would love to hear from people. Yes. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's been a joy. God bless. Bye-bye. Again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My guest, Dr. Brent Patrick McDougall and his book, Prayer Power. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Portland-only segments of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, CNN is making changes once again amid ratings declines there. Uh, they reported making drastic changes as the ratings slump continues. It's taking a toll on the network, and one morning show left over from the Chris Licht era is getting the axe. Poppy Harlow and Phil, Matt, I think it's Mattingly, the current hosts of CNN's This Morning, 6 a.m. to 9 a.m., they're going to be taking on new roles at the network. Uh, Cassie Hunt, who hosts the 5 a.m. hour on CNN, will take over um, the new, smaller iteration of CNN This Morning. And um, there'll be other changes as well. They're hoping they can rescue themselves from the decline. Well, Fulton County D.A. Fannie Willis has confirmed a relationship with special prosecutor in the Trump case, which may um, disqualify her from the role she has played. The district attorney acknowledged in a court filing on Friday having a personal relationship with a special prosecutor she hired for the Georgia election interference case against the former president, but argued there was no ground to dismiss the case or to remove her from the prosecution. She hired special prosecutor Nathan Wade in November of 21 to assist her investigation into whether the Republican ex-president and others broke any laws as they tried to overturn his loss in the 2020 presidential election in Georgia. Well, since the Trump and 18 others were indicted in August. Wade has led the team of uh, lawyers Willis assembled to prosecute the case. The pair who ch- uh, who's charging the county $250 an hour for his work, a bill that has amounted to roughly $654,000 in income, are accused of similar allegations of misusing taxpayer dollars on lavish vacations. The two took together um, on that A public dime. 14 year old Palestinian boy tried to kill an Israeli border agent. His death is on Hamas for brainwashing the child. Critics point out this is the moment Israeli police shot dead a Palestinian boy in the West Bank after he tried to stab an officer. Footage shows the 14 year old identified as a um, uh, a kid cross a busy road and approach an armed border police officer stationed at a checkpoint near the settlement. On the West Bank, as the officer frisked to check him for weapons, the teenager drew what appeared to be a knife from his coat pockets and attempted to stab the policeman several times. When he was unsuccessful in harming the officer, the boy ran away, but he was gunned down from behind by the officers and his two colleagues. The student living in the mostly Palestinian neighborhood in East Jerusalem died from his injuries. Professional... uh, female boxer, one in particular, and a coach, slammed USA Boxing for allowing transgender athletes to compete. In other words, men against women. A female former competitive boxer is slamming one of the sport's top governing bodies over a decision to allow biological males to fight against biological females in the ring, warning that it will result in women getting hurt and opportunities being taken away from female boxers. When I heard that they were allowing transgender people to box women, I could not believe it. Carrie Williams, a former female competitive boxer and Olympic level boxing coach said, I know it's uh, it's been going on in a lot of sports, which is not right at any level. But when you're talking about 
people punching each other in the face, in the body, in the head. I really was surprised. USA Boxing announced a fighter who transitioned from male to female can compete in the female category under several conditions spelled out in the rule book that involve what the fighter identifies as hormone levels and the completion of gender surgery. Dartmouth College has reversed its uh, course. They're going to require SAT, ACT test results in admissions. The Wall Street Journal uh, reported that Dartmouth will require the uh, the ACT and the SAT scores beginning with next year's classes of applicants. The first Ivy League college, uh, a school to reverse course on pandemic era test optional policies. The New Hampshire school said it was making the move based on new research showing that Ivy League and other highly selective schools standardized test scores help predict first year college performance even better than high school grades do. Performance on such tests is an important barometer of student academic caliber, the faculty said. With Dartmouth recruiting more international students as well as students from lesser-known high schools, test scores provide more data on academic prowess. Rather than handicap underprivileged students, the test requirement can help shine a spotlight on achievers from poor areas and give them a chance to succeed. A low-performing Bay Area elementary school saw its student achievement dip even further after introducing Woke Kindergarten. Glassbrook Elementary School in Hayward paid $250,000 for a company called Woke Kindergarten to train its teachers in topics like white supremacy and oppression, everything a kindergartner needs to know. To pay Woke Kindergarten, the school used federal funds, money from a federal program meant to help boost test scores for the country's lowest-performing schools. A woke kindergarten students includes a, a woke word of the day, words like strike, ceasefire, and protest. This is meant to introduce children to a language of the resistance or a um, liberatory vocabula- uh, vocabulary in a way that they can easily digest, understand, and most importantly, use in their critiques of the system, starting with their parents, of course. English and math scores have both declined four percentage points each. Less than 4% of students were proficient in math and less than 12% of students were proficient in English as of last spring. Ah, but they know the language of resistance. So what else could they possibly need to make it in the world? Well, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals ruled this morning that Donald Trump is not immune from prosecution on charges that he tried to illegally overturn the 2020 election. The former president claimed that his alleged criminal actions on the 6th of January were protected by presidential immunity. But the court disagreed. For purposes of this criminal case, former President Trump has become citizen Trump with all the defenses of any other criminal defendant, the panel of three judges wrote. But any executive immunity that may have protected him while he served as president no longer protects him against this prosecution, even though we're talking about acts as uh, that were carried out as president. Well, the defeat was expected for Trump, though he plans to appeal to the entire D.C. Circuit and then the U.S. Supreme Court. Special counsel Jack Smith had asked for an expedited ruling as he hoped to have Trump in the courtroom by March over Charges of insurrection, one of the four indictments against Trump that constitute Democrat lawfare against him. Joe Biden's fake border urgency. The president is blaming Republicans for our current border mess. In fact, he's blaming former President Trump, who's been out of office for three years. Uh, President uh, Biden says that he's responsible and he says he needs border legislation in order to act. Remind him that Donald Trump didn't need special legislation to protect the border. Indeed, as Andrew McCarthy noted, Section 212 
F of the Immigration and Nationality Act, codified at Title 8, U.S. Code 1182, clearly states in pertinent part, whenever the president finds that the uh, entry of any aliens or of any class of aliens into the United States would be detrimental to the interests of the United States, he may, by proclamation and for such period as he shall deem necessary, suspend the entry of all aliens or any class of aliens as immigrants or non-immigrants. Now, what part of that? Uh, doesn't the uh, president and his um, apologists understand? In fact, columnist Tristan Justice has collected 65 examples of the president um, willfully failing to enforce the existing laws. Asked about the risk of torpedoing the current border bill rather than granting Biden his uh, legislative mandate, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott pointed out, President Biden undid the successful measures that Trump put in place. If you can undo them, you can put them back in place. So President Biden does not need legislative action to secure our border. That is simply a lie to the American people. What President Biden needs is intestinal fortitude to go ahead and do his job right now. End quote. President Biden stands against a uh, standalone Israel aid bill. On Monday, the White House warned that the president would veto a standalone bill that provided Aid solely to Israel. The warning was issued by the White House. Will soon take up a vote, um, or rather, the House will soon take up a vote on the $17.6 billion Israel Security Supplemental Appropriations Act. Uh, Biden is once again playing politics. He wants Congress to pass a Senate proposed $118 billion border bill that he disingenuously claims he needs in order to secure the border. House Republicans have warned that the bill, which includes $60 billion in aid for Ukraine and $14 billion in aid for Israel, would be dead on arrival. Republicans blasted the border package deal for failing in every policy area needed to secure our border and would actually incentivize more illegal immigration. The White House then disingenuously claimed that it was Republicans who were guilty of playing politics. That has since changed to MAGA Republicans, and now it's uh, Donald Trump himself. The security of Israel should be sacred, not a political game. It's uh, If that were indeed the case... Then why is Biden rejecting standalone legislation to grant aid to Israel, his critics ask. Evidently, he's only willing to stand with Israel if it comes with a whole litany of unrelated policy items that serve a political agenda. Government interference over vaccines is being scrutinized. We'll tell you more about that in just a few moments. Uh, By the way, remember who is actually responsible for first politicizing the COVID vaccine? It wasn't Donald Trump or MAGA Republicans. It was, well, Joe Biden's vice president. A vice presidential pick, Kamala Harris, who back in the fall of 2020 said that she would not trust Donald Trump regarding any vaccine. When pressed if she would get the vaccine, she added, I will not take his word for it. Fast forward a few months later and the administration not only changed its tune on the vaccine, but sought to force as many Americans as possible into getting it. Well, now the House Judiciary Committee has obtained emails that show the degree of pressure of the pressure campaign waged by the White House on big tech companies, including Amazon, to suppress any opposition to the vaccine. Opposition it once itself embraced. Well, we'll uh, talk more about that in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final uh, segment of The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about uh, a, a shift in priorities uh, among uh, those in the, the administration who had blamed Republicans, Donald Trump and MAGA Republicans, for people uh, declining to take the uh, 
the shot, if you will. Well, now the House Judiciary Committee has obtained emails that show the degree of pressure uh, that was waged by the White House on big tech companies, including Amazon, to suppress any opposition to the vaccine. This is um, opposition that the administration itself once embraced when Trump was in office. Well, feeling the pressure back in March of 21, Amazon employees sought a meeting with the White House to clarify if the administration wanted the company to remove anti-vax books from its retail catalog. Is the administration asking, asking us to remove books or are they more concerned about search results uh, Orders or both was the question from one Amazon employee. Andrew Slavitt, then senior advisor to Biden on his COVID response, was communicating with Amazon about the high levels of propaganda and misinformation and disinformation on Amazon. In several emails from Slavitt to Amazon, he pressured the company over concerning materials on its site related to vaccines. What becomes um, clear is a pattern of the White House pushing Amazon to effectively censor any material that didn't further its policy objectives regarding the COVID vaccine. Well, the U.S. is on an unsustainable fiscal path. In a recent interview with CBS's 60 Minutes, Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell admitted what many conservatives have long been warning about, that the U.S. government is spending too much money. Powell pointed to the ballooning national debt and noted, in the long run, the U.S. is on an unsustainable fiscal path. And that just means that the debt is growing faster than the economy. He then warned, effectively, we're borrowing from future generations. It's time for us to get back to putting a priority on fiscal sustainability and sooner is better than later, end quote. Well, welcome to the party. The trouble is that there are still not enough lawmakers in Congress who are willing to truly put the brakes on the federal government's spending. But then again, there's an election. You can play a role in all of that. Most uh, assailants use handguns, not rifles, in mass shootings. Well, why is that relevant? Well, a new study from the Crime Prevention Research Center that looks at the data from public mass shootings over the last 25 years has confirmed what many Second Amendment advocates have long known. The most common firearms used in so-called mass shootings are handguns, not rifles. The study also notes that most shootings took place in supposed gun-free zones and would not have been prevented by a law requiring universal background checks. The study's authors and founder of the center, John Lott Jr., pointed out that one of the biggest problems is with the terms mass shooting, observing the big thing that irritates me is you have somebody like President Biden go and say, we have Uvalde and we've had 600 more attacks like this. That's simply false because uh, they're just putting apples and oranges together. Well, the anti-Second Amendment lobby loves to target the AR-15, erroneously dubbing it an assault rifle, as if that type of firearm is the problem and responsible for most mass shootings. But the facts don't come close to backing up that narrative. Irrespective of the firearm used in these crimes, every one of these attacks is committed by individuals with criminal intent to break the law. Well, the woke National Hockey League booked a pro-Hamas national anthem singer. What is it with the woke NHL? Fans say, well, in a sport, a sport rather defined by speed, grit, toughness and determination, it confounds uh, fans to see such sorry uh, changes. Perhaps the league's management hasn't gotten the message. If it had, it certainly wouldn't have invited a 26 year old singer to perform the national anthem in the 2024 NHL All-Star Game in Toronto. Instead, there was um, a, a lead-wearing pro-Hamas attire and causing the uh, the league some much-deserved heartburn. As the Daily Caller reported, uh, lead wore a cardigan resembling a, um, a kifa, 
something that has been uh, gaining popularity with Palestinian supporters. The pro-Palestinian crowd uses the uh, attire, black and white, checkered, as a symbol of unity, the same symbol that was worn for this uh, national anthem. It's not as if the behavior surprised the NHL brass, or at least it shouldn't have. Her anti-Israel proclivities have been well known ever since the um, Jewish state began to defend itself against the terrorists of Hamas. But in a world full of wonderful singers, this was the best apparently the NHL could do. Well, Biden and Haley are on the ballot, but not Trump, as Nevada holds the presidential primaries today. And several migrants accused of uh, in the beating of two New York City police officers have been arrested in Phoenix. Chinese migrants are the fastest growing group crossing from Mexico into the U.S. at the southern border. And New York Governor Hochul has relaxed the requirements for illegals to get government jobs. President Biden is being blasted for claiming abortion is Uh, For three trimesters is not on demand and a medical journal retracted major studies critical about the abortion pill ahead of the Supreme Court clash. Well, on this day in history, 1759, George Washington and Martha Dandridge uh, Custis uh, were married in New Kent County, Virginia. 1838, Samuel Morris and Alfred Vail, they gave the first successful public demonstration of their telegraph in Morristown, New Jersey. 1941, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, in his State of the Union address, outlines a goal of four freedoms, freedom of speech and expression, the freedom of people to worship God in their own way, freedom from want, freedom from fear. 1945, George Herbert Walker Bush marries Barbara Pierce at the First Presbyterian Church in Rye, New York. On this day in history, 1968, a surgical team at Stanford University School of Medicine in Palo Alto, California, led by Dr. Norman Shumway, performs the first U.S. adult heart transplant, placing the heart of a 43-year-old man in a 54-year-old patient. The recipient would die 15 days later. A year-round in 1974, a year-round daylight savings time begins in the United States on a trial basis as a fuel-saving measure in response to the OPEC oil embargo. 1993, authorities rescued Jennifer Stolpa and her infant son Clayton after Jennifer's husband James succeeded in reaching help, ending the family's eight-day ordeal after becoming lost in the snow-covered Nevada desert. 1994, figure skater Nancy Kerrigan is clubbed on the leg by an assailant at Detroit's Kobo Arena. Four men, including the ex-husband of Kerrigan's rival, Tanya Harding, would go to prison for their roles in the attack. Harding would plead guilty to conspiracy to hinder prosecution, but deny any advanced knowledge about the assault. 1998, in a new bid to expand health insurance, President Clinton unveils a proposal to offer Medicare coverage to hundreds of thousands of uninsured Americans between the ages of 55 and 64. 2001, with Vice President Al Gore presiding in his capacity as president of the Senate, Congress formally certifies George W. Bush the winner of the bitterly contested 2000 presidential election. 2003, Iraqi President Saddam Hussein accused U.N. inspectors of engaging in intelligence work instead of searching for suspected nuclear, chemical, and biological weapons in his country. 2014, the U.S. Supreme Court stays a decision by a federal judge striking down Utah's ban on same-sex marriage so that the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals in Denver could decide the issue. In June of 2014, the Court of Appeals would overturn the ban. In October, the U.S. Supreme Court would uh, turn away appeals from five states seeking to preserve their bans 
including Utah. And finally, on this day in history, 2014, a vote of 56 to 26, the U.S. Senate confirms Janet Yellen as the first woman to lead the Federal Reserve. Well, I want to thank James Blend for producing, Dave King for engineering, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.